the University of Tennessee Howard H. Baker Jr. Center for Public Policy, and the Knox County Public Library are partners in a community study of the book Justice as Fairness, a Restatement by John Rawls. The following recording is part five in a five-part series. In this last episode, David Reedy of the UT Department of Philosophy discusses the question of stability. Tonight we have with us Dr. David Reedy, who is with the University of Tennessee Department of Philosophy, and he is the expert on Rawls. He is the man. (laughs) We're very, very pleased to have him. His expertise is just phenomenal, so I hope you'll take advantage of that as he presents um, the last section of the book. So without further ado, David Reedy. Okay, thanks, Amy. Since I'm batting cleanup, as it were, I thought that it might be a good thing to say a few words that might help to draw this project of Rawls's together, illuminate it as a whole, uh, and then come to the question of stability, which is the topic of part five, after having done that. I would have to tell you a little bit about the project as a whole, in any case, to come to the question of stability, because the question of stability um, for Rawls in this book is very different than it was in his book, A Theory of Justice. And that has to do with what's called the political turn in his work. But let me just back up a little bit, okay? And And hopefully this will also shed some light on why this project is so fundamental for us right now. Right now, as Evan Bayh leaves the Senate, because it is impossible to sustain relations of mutual trust between people who, on each side of the aisle, regard the others as pretending to give reasons, but really just advancing class interest, ideological, dogmatic commitments, and so on. Okay? So let me take you back to the mid-1940s, when Rawls gets back to the States after having fought in World War II in the Pacific Theater and narrowly averted death, having taken a bullet just to the side of his head, which, but for another inch or two, would have been the end. The war had a powerful impact on him, caused him to lose his faith in God, or at least a theistic God. It also caused him to wonder what he'd been fighting for. Was it a rational thing to do, to volunteer, as he did, to potentially give up his life for democracy? And when he came back in the 40s and started graduate study at Princeton, the dominant view about morality, a view informed by the Vienna Circle and logical positivism, was that moral judgments weren't really rational or cognitive at all. Moral judgments were just the expression of emotion or attitudes, tastes about which there was no rational argument. And Rawls thought to himself, A, that's an unappealing view of moral judgments in general. B, it's a disaster for democracy. If such reasoning isn't possible then all democracy is is war by other means. All democracy is is us pretending 
to give one another reasons, but really just asserting the power of numbers, money, and votes. It's just counterfeit. Nobody wants to have risked their lives for something that turns out to be counterfeit. And so Rawls set himself the task, a twofold task, of demonstrating that moral judgments were in fact properly regarded as rational. And thus, secondarily, that democracy was something that was in fact possible. That project started as early as 1946. Now, you have to understand just a few things about how he tried to vindicate the rationality of moral judgments to understand then what he's doing when he's trying to vindicate the possibility of democracy, which is the aim of a theory of justice, and then justice as fairness is restating that book along with political liberalism. Lots of people had been driven to skepticism about moral judgment because they had been looking in all the wrong places for its rationality. People had thought that moral judgments could be rational only if they were like observational or empirical judgments, that is, if we can see moral properties out there in the world. Hence, we must have some special faculty called rational intuition that allows us to discern truths, moral truths, just lying around like sticks and rocks on the ground but it's manifest that we have no such faculty since competent people of goodwill disagree about all sorts of moral questions even when they agree that there's a stick and a rock on the ground. If we've got such a faculty, it's a lousy one. Others thought that we had to have some account of the semantic or linguistic meaning of moral terms that would vindicate their rationality, show them to be deducible from logic, say, a priori. But that's also obvious. Right? You can't deduce substantive moral principles from logical principles alone. And so people got skeptical. So Rawls says to himself, how about we try a different approach? An approach that he finds inspiration for in the work of Henry Sidgwick, the 19th century British moralist, utilitarian. Sidgwick's idea was to treat morality as a science. In fact, Rawls starts out, not starts out, but continues. His whole project is scientific. Scientific in what sense? Well, Rawls says, look, every science has to start with observable data. What's the relevant observable data for morality? The relevant observable data are moral judgments of competent persons that are stable on reflection and that we have no reason to believe are the result of bias, dogmatism, manipulation, and so on. And then Rawls says, there's our data. Now, what would a good scientist do? A good scientist would look for a theory that accounts for that data. Now, the theory isn't going to be a theory of how we reason. It's not going to be a theory of what's going on inside of our heads. Rawls calls it a reasoning machine. All we need to do is to construct a reasoning machine that would yield as its output when fed facts about the world these considered judgments. If we had such a reasoning machine and it was intelligible to us, we could see its principles working and how they fit together, 
we would have a rational representation of how people might arrive at moral judgments. And insofar as we could care less how they in fact do what's going on in the inner recesses of their mind, which could never be the proper object of a science in any case because you can't observe it, right? Insofar as we don't care about that, we will have everything that we need. At least he thought initially we'd have everything we need. He calls that an explication. The goal of an explication is to design a reasoning machine that yields as its output the considered moral judgments of competent persons in some domain. That's the goal of explication. The original position is going to bear strong resemblance to explication so understood, except there's a wrinkle, which we'll get to. Now, explication by itself, a few years later, Rawls decides, isn't the complete and final project of moral philosophy. Because all philosophy aims at self-understanding from Socrates forward. So having a rational representation of our considered moral judgments that's intelligible but that we cannot embrace as a vision of ourselves doesn't yet complete the philosophical project. Philosophy aims at self-understanding, so what it aims at is the identification of a reasoning machine that can win our allegiance, a phrase that you even see in this chapter. Rawls talks about a political conception that wins our allegiance, that we are drawn to. Drawn to in what sense? As a picture or representation of what we are in some important respect. Now that's not a trivial matter because Rawls thinks that what persons ultimately are is animated practical reason. Practical reason is that aspect of our reason that forms ideas of things and then realizes them in the world. It's the making part of reason, right? Not just the knowing part of reason, but the making part of reason. It's an old idea. I mean, think about just back to theistic conceptions of God, right? God was always two things, all-knowing and the maker, right? And God was rational. The two aspects of reason are right there, right? God has theoretical reason that knows, practical reason that makes. What people are is animated practical reason. They form a conception of themselves and realize it in the world. How do we do that? We make a picture of what we are, and then we embrace it as our own self-understanding and live according to it, hence making ourselves into a particular kind of thing. That's what Rawls calls justification. Moral principles, those given by a successful explication, are justified just in case the same free and intelligent men and women whose considered judgments we're explicating will embrace, will be drawn to, will toss their allegiance with that explication as a representation of themselves, internalizing it so that it becomes regulative for them as they go forward. Internalizing it so that it becomes part of how they think about what they're doing. And it starts to regulate their natural desires, their feelings, their expressions, their conduct, and so on. Now, that's Rawls before he even gets to the problem of democracy. How does the problem of democracy arise? This is a tough nut to crack. This is why Rawls, as I was saying, thinks of himself as a world historical figure. Remember what the problem for democracy was in the 40s and 50s. There was great hand-wringing 
in the U.S. and in the U.K. after World War II about whether democracy was a viable project. Great hand-wringing. And in the early 1950s, Walter Lippmann and others were publicly expressing a desire to return to rule of elites, a a model of democracy as mere legitimation, managing the masses while elites run the show. So there was a lot of skepticism about democracy, and Rawls, as we said, knew that it depended on identifying reasons that would govern our public deliberations. So suppose you're going to pursue the same project to show that reasoned judgments about social justice are possible. You find the considered judgments of competent persons that are stable on reflection and so on, right? And then you give an explication and you look to see whether or not it's embraced by people, whether it's justified, whether it wins their allegiance. That's all fine, except there's one big wrinkle. We give each other lots of reasons and we have lots of considered judgments about issues of politics and political morality. But there's one question that hardly anybody in here has ever thought of prior to five weeks ago. And that's the justice of the basic social structure taken as a whole, as a system, a dynamic network of institutions over time. Because that's a question that is pitched at such a high level of abstraction that we never, in fact, actually encounter it in real life. Right? None of us have been asked to design a society ab initio. We have to cast votes on abortion or on this candidate or on a tax policy. or Fine, right? We can gather all those considered judgments together, but that won't answer the most basic question because remember the worry is that people are merely pretending at that. They're pretending to give each other reasons when really all they're doing is asserting class interest and we've got no way, nobody has any way to demonstrate that what they're doing is really giving reasons. There were only two approaches in the early 50s that you might have appealed to to try to demonstrate that reasonable democratic citizens were really giving reasons when they disagreed about these issues and not merely pretending at it. And both of them were all regarded as a failure. The first was to say that, well, what they're doing, the reason they're really giving reasons is because they're appealing to that special faculty called rational intuition. And if they're being sincere and honest about that, then they're really giving reasons. Well, you can't tell. If I give you reasons for why I'm pro-life or pro-choice, and the only thing I can tender by way of demonstrating to you that I really am giving reasons is, hey, I'm a sincere guy and I'm exercising my capacity for rational intuition, calling them as I see them. You better trust me. That's my... You're not going to believe that I'm giving you reasons. You're going to think that I'm driven by my religious commitments or I'm one of those bastard secular humanists and, you know, and I'm just trying to mask it all with some sort of reason giving. So the, the intuitionist path isn't going to go anywhere. The other main alternative is utilitarianism. I might say that, look, I take lots of different views about the reasons I give on particular issues. And in fact, it was obvious to anybody who was looking at the political scene then that there was something like a common grab bag of reasons that citizens drew on. It's just that they drew on different reasons for the same cases and they ordered them differently and so they were constantly disagreeing in their own substantive judgments and nobody could be confident that the particular ordering that, they were, that somebody else was giving or that they were given was driven by rational judgment rather than class interest, bias, and so on. So one might say, well, look, the, re- the way I order these principles is by appealing to the principle of utility. 
The principle of utility is what tells me which principle I follow in any particular case. That's what determines that in the marketplace we should give people their just desserts for work, but when it comes to health care, need is what should go. You know, I'm always appealing to the principle of utility. The problem is the principle of utility can justify just about anything given enough information. And since there's an indefinitely large amount of information that citizens can appeal to to try to justify their particular ordering of principles, it doesn't solve anything. It can't sustain trust. So we need some other way to demonstrate that we're making reasonable judgments here. Some way to show one another that as we draw on particular principles for our considered judgments in particular cases, we're not just pretending to be democratic citizens. We really are. Well, that would require putting out some views about what the principles of justice are. So what is the original position? And I'm going to a really deep point here. I'm I'm trying to work up to the single most important thing to understand about this project. And it's not the one I'm just going to give you now. I'm working up to it. But what is the original position? The original position is a way of representing democratic citizens confronting this first problem about principles of justice. It's not an explication of judgments that we already have about those questions because we never ask ourselves questions about the most basic principles of justice because we're never asked to design a society. It's now a reversal. It's a way of constructing a reasoning machine that is constructed at the front end so that we have reason to accept its output as telling us what it is to reason as democratic citizens. Okay? And the key now is, here's the big payoff point before we turn to the question of stability. The key is that Rawls is not giving you a prescription for how you should think if you want to be a good democratic citizen. He's simply telling you what it is to think as a democratic citizen. Full stop. To reason from those two principles as the background assumptions that inform how you weight and apply all the other principles that you draw on when you make everyday political judgments about who to vote for, which tax policy to favor, environmental law, abortion, and all the rest. To reason as a democratic citizen is to reason with those two principles always in the background functioning as the last line of defense in reasoning. Okay? Now, of course, you still have to go on and show that those principles would then function as a kind of explication of the judgments we do make in everyday life about constitutional matters and so on, and Rawls tries to do that in part two of A Theory of Justice. And you have to show that they're justified. You have to show that they would win the allegiance of free and intelligent people as a kind of self-representation of what they were as democratic citizens. That's part three of a theory of justice. Now we come to our chapter. In part three of a theory of justice, Rawls made the case that in a society that had the kinds of institutions that would have been supported by these two principles, people would, free and intelligent men and women, would come to identify with those two principles as a kind of self-representation. They would internalize those principles as regulative of their own conduct, political and otherwise. 
And that's what he means by justification. Now, the downside is that in a theory of justice, he treated those two principles as if they were part of a kind of complete moral view, a view of everything that was important. That meant the two principles were going to compete with Thomistic Christianity. They were going to compete with all sorts of moral doctrines, religious doctrines, and so on. And that's a bad thing because in a free society, people are going to have a lot of different views about those matters, right? And if the justification of these principles turns on intelligent people freely tossing their allegiance with what would require them to abandon the various views they have in other areas of life, that's not an acceptable solution. It's not justified, right? People won't do that. It's unrealistic. Now, the problem with stability as you encounter it here is Rawls re-wrestling with that problem after he's taken what he calls the political turn. So what's the solution? Chip it back to a narrow political doctrine, which is what it should have been in the first place. The principles we're looking for were just principles that govern our reasoning as democratic citizens about how to design society's basic institutions, and that's it. Right? They're not principles that are going to govern our reasoning about friendship or the value of marriage or you know, any of these other things that inform our lives. They're just principles that are going to govern our reasoning about this narrow political question. So in the chapter that you've got, what we see is Rawls addressing this stability question, which is really a question about whether people will give their allegiance over to this self-representation where the self-representation now has been chiseled back to a narrow political doctrine. Political in the sense that the principles themselves only apply to political questions about constitutional design and basic justice. Political in the sense that the story we tell to bring those principles to life, the reasoning machine that generates them, as it were, draws only on political ideals. We're no longer thinking about persons as metaphysically free, just citizens as free to change their minds about things and so on. Right? So you've got a narrow political conception of persons, of society, and so on. And then we test that political conception for two features. It's tested for two features. The first is, would it naturally engender some sort of loyalty amongst citizens who live under its institutions? And the second is, can we expect those citizens then to be motivated by that loyalty to act on it? It's one thing for principles to engender loyalty or a sense of identification. It's another thing for people to be effectively motivated to act on it. And those are the two questions that are answered in this part five. Are the principles of justice as fairness when recast as a narrow political doctrine the kinds of principles that people would come to identify with if they lived under institutions governed by them? And having come to identify with them, would people allow, find it good for them to allow those principles to become regulative of their political life? And that's an important thing because remember, there are, as Rawls points out in this chapter, there will be people who think that by identifying with these principles and allowing them to be regulative, they have to forswear advancing what they take to be the whole truth about some question 
in political life because there's a difference between what's true and what's reasonable. And just because you're convinced that your religious doctrine about the salvation of souls being possible only in the church is true doesn't mean that it's a reasonable doctrine to advance politically. Justice's fairness surely condemns it as an unreasonable doctrine to advance politically. So this question about effective motivation is a live question. It's a question about whether it's reasonable for us to expect people who do hold those religious views. There's no reason to suppose that's going away. There will be people in our country 200 years from now who believe with every fiber in their being that there is no salvation outside of the church and that the salvation of souls is the most important thing at stake here on earth. We need some reasonable basis for confidence that even they can participate with us in democratic reason-giving and that when they do, it's not counterfeit. It's not pretend. Because if it's counterfeit and pretend... All bets are off. And sooner or later, people pick up guns. That's the history of the world. Sooner or later, people pick up guns if they cannot trust you in political life. When the stakes are high, salvations of souls. So everything in Rawls's view rides on the success of this project. If we cannot vindicate the rationality of political judgments... We're doomed, but so's the world. Because this is the last greatest hope. Not America in particular, but the idea of constitutional liberal democracy. This is what vindicates human nature as redeemed or redeemable here on earth. That's, that's his view. Okay, so with that, now I hope that sets a little bit more firmly the stage for why this stuff matters so much and the depth and richness of the project. You're not engaging this work in a serious way if you're looking for little minute, you know, well, the original position argument doesn't work this way and I've got a maximum in print. Rawls says repeatedly, there's going to be gaps in the argument. I know my view is not the final view. It's not the last word. But it would be foolish to set it aside and to return for looking for the first word without understanding the animating idea, without risking a chance to being drawn into its orbit. Okay, so let me take your questions on the details of Chapter 5. You may wonder what a reasonable moral psychology is. You may wonder what the idea of overlapping consensus is. You may wonder what it means to characterize a doctrine as a political doctrine rather than a comprehensive doctrine. Um, I'm happy to answer any and all of those things. So I thought since I was batting cleanup um, and you've uh, spent four weeks soldiering through this stuff that I might give you a sense of the richness of the tapestry that you've been following out. I wonder if I could say just this much uh, about the connection I feel I have with uh, John Rawls on a more personal basis. I was uh, a graduate student in philosophy at the University of Chicago. Bert Draben and I were, huh. <laughs> were classmates there in the, middle, right? in the middle 1950s. I remember Bert very well. We were not close friends, and we were not in the same fraternity as far as philosophy was concerned. But I was certainly interested to see Bert's name. Yeah. Rawls does not have a 
preface in which he does not acknowledge Bert Graben's value to him, which I can appreciate. Yep. So uh, just one thing you'll enjoy hearing about Bert, he had many famous quips, but one of his most famous quips about Rawls's writing was that it's pretty, it's pretty good for having been translated out of German. <laughs> In this last chapter, again, as he does throughout, throughout the book, he distinguishes the reasonable and the rational. Mm-hmm. I think he does it two or three ways as he goes through the book. Could you kind of put that in perspective? Yeah, when Rawls talks about reasonable as against rational, yep. what's he mean? Yep. There's two or three ways in which he talks about the reasonable. For the most part, I think there's just one way in which he draws a distinction between the rational and the reasonable, although I suppose you could imagine two senses of rational. So let's go back to that initial distinction I made between practical and theoretical reason um, when I was talking about you know, the theistic idea of making God making the world according to reason and so on. Um, and then work out from there, okay? If you think of reason first as theoretical, the, the Greek theos means to see, it's to see clearly from a distance. Theoretical reason in its first instance is just contemplative. It's just reason grasping truth, okay? Now, that may seem insignificant, but that's a sense of rationality that is covered by deductive and inductive reasoning, and that a single person in the world could have all by him or herself. It makes no reference to anything other than a single person. Okay, so the first thing is that rationality understood theoretically refers just to a single person when it's theoretical reason. Now let's think about practical reason, the side of reasoning that's involved in making things, making A choice, for example. Practical reason in one of its manifestations is also something that could be possessed by a single individual. And that's what he's calling the rational here in the book for the most part. That's reason judging what is good for a single person. So the rational is my capacity to make a judgment of practical reason about what is good for me. And that involves not only identifying ends, but then choosing means to ends. And again, that's a notion of reason that could be possessed by a single person. There's no reference to a plurality of persons at all. So on both the theoretical and the practical side, the idea of just bare rationality is something that we can cash out if there was only one person in the world. I don't know if you realize how deeply religious Rawls was prior to the war and how deeply linked his work is and informed by Christian theology. If God had not created man, what kind of reason could God have? Only rationality as I've just described it, theoretical and practical. God could contemplate truths and judge what was good for God. Now we come to the second aspect of reason which is only part of practical reason. That's the reasonable, as he says. The reasonable has as its object a question of right relations with other persons. That's its object. 
To be reasonable is to seek to be justified with another. And the idea of justification, if you just think to your computer programs, right justification, left justification, justification means to be brought to a line, to be brought to a line one with another, to share in reason, to be intelligible to one another and mutually acceptable. The reasonable, then, is that aspect of practical reason that we exercise when we make community with one another. To make community is to find justification between us, to render ourselves intelligible, not just forces in nature, but intelligible to one another and mutually acceptable to affirm one another in our moral personality. That's the exercise of the capacity for reasonable. For God to be complete, I was taught by Jesuits, and like Rawls gave it up uh, for various reasons, but it's very important if you're going to do philosophy to know a little bit about theology. For, for, God, to be, for God to be complete as reason on this theistic theological doctrine, God had to create man because God had to form community, or at least God had to be triune. Because there had to be some plurality of persons that sought justification between each other, some community. And that's the, that's, that's the great mystery, the, you know, God as not just a single being, but as community. So the reasonable is about finding justification, bringing ourselves to align with, with one another, making in the world community, which is the meaning of communion. Right? That's why it's a sacrament. It's about making community in the world. So every time Rawls talks about the reasonable, what he's talking about is a capacity that we have as persons to make ourselves intelligible as persons to one another and to seek community with one another. It's more than being rational. A sociopath can be rational. In fact, in the theory of justice, that's the example Rawls gives. A sociopath can clearly discern truths in principle and can form a conception of their own good and advance it. What they don't recognize is that there are other persons to whom they ought to be justified. They're rational but not reasonable. And reasonableness presupposes rationality because if we didn't have our own conception of our own good, if we didn't see things in our own way, then we wouldn't be separate persons who had to be aligned with one another. We would be like, if you're Star Trek fans, we'd be like the Borg. So the reasonable always refers at its root to this capacity that we have to render ourselves intelligible and to seek justification and thereby community with one another. Now, you're absolutely right, and this is a huge frustration for people who read Rawls in the literature, to then point out that there are all different senses in which he seems to use the word reasonable beyond that. For example, he talks about how it's um, unreasonable to deny the burdens of judgment. Right? That's one of the things that makes a person reasonable is that they accept the burdens of judgment and they accept the fact of oppression, that, that the only way you could overcome the burdens of judgment was the use of coercive state power. Reasonable people have to accept that. Right? Well, Rawls thinks that's just such an obvious truth that you would not credibly be able to claim that you were seeking justification with one another if every time you encountered a person of manifest intelligence who sought to be justified with you, if every time you disagreed you thought, 
you're just an idiot. I'm going to use power to change your view. If that was your view, you would be unreasonable in the sense that it would no longer be credible to claim that you were really possessed of or inclined to exercise this capacity to find mutual justification with others. It's just, you know, history's run along long enough. It's pretty clear we're going to reasonably disagree on some big questions, and people of high intelligence and goodwill do so. Aquinas and Luther and Kant and Mill all disagreed on fundamental questions of metaphysics. They're all pretty smart. They're all good chaps. Probably we ought not decide that, you know, all or at least some of them are idiots and we're going to use the power of the state to fix it. That would be unreasonable. So there are these other ways in which the term reasonable gets used, but they really do always come back to this taproot of finding mutual justification with others. So, for example, now to take, an exa- uh, take one more from the, the chapter, suppose you have a religious doctrine that firmly adheres to the idea that there is no salvation for souls outside the church. That's taken to be a true, given by revelation and affirmed by the light of reason, if you will, principle. That doctrine can still be reasonable if it's prepared to engage in its adherence, its followers are prepared to engage in political life on reasonable terms. And that would be true even if it turns out that the doctrine is false. Even if it turns out that there is no God. Or it turns out that there is a God, but there's plenty of salvation outside the church. Even if those things turned out as an absolute matter of fact to be true, so that the doctrine was really committed to a false belief, right? the doctrine would still be reasonable insofar as its adherents were prepared to find terms of mutual justification to live with one another on a constitutional liberal democracy. Too many people can't achieve justice if this becomes part of the way we live together. In our... If you have a concept of there's a God and, and, and there's no salvation out there, that, that certainly is a concept of the good. And yeah. So it's reasonable. No, 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 no. So, so stop about whether it's reasonable or not. It's a concept about the good, okay? Yeah. So that means it's an exercise of practical rationality. Not reasonableness, but rationality. It's an attempt by a single being. Well, wait a minute. Presumably, a, conceivably by the, by the church as a whole. Well, wait a minute. It's a belief. So, I, you know, I, I, I think it, it's, it's, it, it manifests a kind of a good, but it certainly isn't rational because there'd be a lot of people that couldn't, Possibly. Well, which, which, which thing couldn't be rational? The belief that there's no salvation outside the church? Right. Um, I think Rawls's view is that the belief that there's no salvation outside the church can be rational in the sense of an exercise of theoretical reason. It might be true. Theoretical reason might discern it. A single omni-intelligent person might know that truth. It might also, as a matter of the exercise of practical rationality of a single person, be a true account of what their own good is. They might not only realize that there's no salvation outside the church, but they might decide that salvation is their highest good, which would not be a theoretical claim, but a practical claim about what, ought, what they ought to pursue as their good. That's also possible. Okay? So as a matter of pure rationality, there's nothing to impugn that doctrine. Rawls is very careful never to say anything that would impugn that doctrine. The question is, can a person who rationally holds that belief be reasonable 
in political life. That is, can they find community, mutual intelligibility and justification with other persons of manifest intelligence and goodwill who do not hold that belief? And Rawls's project here is to show that people who do hold this belief, that's presumably rational, can also be reasonable. Now that says an additional thing about the structure of reason that goes back to Kant, back to Hegel. It raises interesting theistic questions that really go back to Aristotle's conception of the divine. Rawls insists that within this complex called reason that has a theoretical dimension and a practical dimension, and that also, this is now a cross-cutting distinction, that involves rationality and reasonableness, right? Those are two separate distinctions, and they cut across each other, right? Within that complex called reason, practical reason and within it, reasonableness dominates. That, as Rawls says, it frames and subordinates the rest of the exercise of reason, at least if you're going to be a person, If you're going to be a person, then the reasonable as one part of our practical rationality is what frames and subordinates the rest. Now, Rawls will admit, and if you read very carefully um, in this book, especially in this section, he says he cannot offer any knockdown, drag-out argument to defeat the view of somebody who says, no, no rationality and my grasping my true good is the part of reason that dominates all the rest. That's the part that I'm going to commit myself to. There's really no way to argue against that. It's a question of which conception of yourself you're to embrace. Are you to embrace a conception of yourself that is in principle social that is in principle oriented towards community, that is in principle committed to mutual intelligibility and justification, or are you to embrace a conception of yourself that in principle might be the lone reasoner theoretically able to grasp your true good and committed to pursuing it come hell or high water, no matter who gets in your way. There's no argument for for how to decide that. In his unpublished work, he says there's an existential moment in philosophy, moral philosophy, that cannot be avoided. And the existential moment is, do you want to be a person in the sense of the reasonable framing and subordinating the rational, or do you want to just be a a lone rational agent, or at least in principle possibly a lone rational agent in the world? Rawls thinks that the latter choice, theologically, is fundamentally sin because it's turning your back on community. It's turning your back on mutual intelligibility with others. And that's what sin in the end ultimately is. Thanks, Dr. Reedy. I appreciate your your comments. Um, In light of this question, uh, is this what Rawls means by uh, reasonable pluralism? Also, in light of your uh, closing remarks, how does pluralism play into the question of stability for Rawls in, uh, in a pluralistic society maintaining political stability, and guaranteeing, as you say, a politi- genuine political participation. Yeah. A reasonable pluralism is a pluralism of comprehensive doctrines, 
forms of association within civil society, diverse ways of living that we pursue individually, that is compatible with democratic community, with community at the level of our basic political institutions. Now, there's also what he calls simple pluralism. Simple pluralism is just pluralism full stop, um, which includes associations, doctrines, individual lives, ways of living that are not compatible with democratic community. The idea of stability is to show moving in two directions, that if we institutionally embodied the two principles, if we had a constitutional liberal democracy that ensured fair equality of opportunity, that secured basic rights and liberties, that had an appropriate pattern of distribution across time when it came to wealth and income and so on, if that was the case, the first side is to say that that would engender allegiance amongst a whole range of groups. People like me, had I not, it's sort of faded if you're taught by Jesuits that you will renounce the faith and work on social justice. At least that's the way it seems to me. Um, but, but suppose I hadn't, and suppose I remained a good liberal Thomistic Catholic, right? The idea is that these institutions will draw the allegiance of liberal Thomistic Catholics, but will also draw the allegiance of secular humanists who follow John Stuart Mill, and will also draw the allegiance of Jews and Muslims, and will also draw the allegiance of people who follow a reasonable reading of Nietzsche, and, you know, and so on. Right? It will draw the allegiance of all these different groups. And of course, will there be some groups that the allegiance is not drawn? Yes, but the only question then is, are we leaving behind groups that are prepared to cooperate on reasonable terms but somehow aren't finding in this self-representation of what it is to be a citizen anything attractive, right? Rawls thinks there'll be some groups that are left behind, but they're probably going to be unreasonable groups. And the only question with them is, like a cancer, can you contain them? You want to make sure that they don't spread. If there are reasonable groups that are left behind that don't find in these principles of justice a vision of themselves as reasonable members of a democratic community, then we really have a problem, right? But he thinks that the institutions once engendered will, based on just natural laws of human psychology, engender loyalty across these various diverse groups. And he points out, as you see, that lots of groups might start out a little anxious, maybe they're drawn into this thing only as a modus vivendi, right? As a kind of, well, we can't control all of society yet because we don't have the numbers, so we'll play this game for a while, but as soon as we get the numbers, we're taken over. You know, that's what the... It's what uh, Muslim groups in Algeria have been banking on for years, right? They have democratic elections, and they're always setting aside the results because... There's groups that are just playing the game until they've got enough numbers to take over, right? They're not really committed to democracy. But Rawls says that, you know, groups drawn into the project, even as a modus vivendi, will find it appealing in various ways over time, and it's just part of our natural psychology that we'll find it hard to think that others are doomed and damned and not worth comp- not, not at least worth cooperating with here on Earth, and we might eventually be drawn into a constitutional consensus where, you know, we haven't really fully bought in, but we're prepared now to at least swear by this constitution, right? And then over time, that consensus might become deeper and richer. So he thinks there's a good argument on that side. 
On the other side, then, you have to look at the question from the point of view of these reasonable doctrines and ask them one by one. Now, Rawls doesn't do this very much, but you have to ask them one by one, is it reasonable to expect those who affirm these doctrines to really embrace this political conception as part of their self-understanding, not just as democratic citizens, but as believers, right, as full-blown participants in a particular association or way of life? Now, there's a lot of those around, right? The United States has, I don't know, 156 religions now that, you know, have large numbers of uh, uh, members. We have a lot of diversity when it comes to metaphysical views and so on. So you can't possibly go through all that. So he just takes a few examples and kind of roughly suggests how it might go. But that's up to us, right, to, to inhabit these doctrines and see whether or not we can reason our way from them at least to some sort of embrace um, of these uh, principles in a way that doesn't leave us morally fragmented, right? I mean, in the end, if I'm going to be a liberal Thomistic Catholic who's committed to democracy, I have to be a single person who can do that, right? I can't be, well, you know, as soon as I step in the voting booth, I forget who I am on, on other accounts, and I, I, I'm, I'm an integrated person. So there has to be some intelligible linkage between the two um, that I can accept as part of my unified personality. Uh, but he thinks both of those sorts of arguments can be, can be made good and that if you can make both those good, you've got a prima facie case for stability. I'm wondering if there is an objective criteria for reasonableness. I'm thinking of different societies in which society as a whole may be unreasonable, at least from our perspective today. Perhaps if you were a Jew in Nazi Germany or if you were a black in, in the days of slavery, or if you were a woman in a misogynist, fundamentalist, Islamic state, how can you, can you have cooperation in, in a society like that? You asked at the front, how can we have objective criteria of the reasonable? Now, the temptation here, when you think of the desire for objective criteria, which we all want, is to stand open-armed waiting for tablets to fall from the sky in a booming voice. Because that would be objective. We'd be forced to our knees. Rawls rejected that in the 40s. And when he did, he said something that he never stopped saying and that he says on page 196. I do Rawls like Talmud. <laughs> he says, the reasonable generates itself and answers itself in kind. The source of objectivity is the reasonable itself. There's nothing outside of it. Rawls calls this the doctrine of the autonomy of practical reason. And there is nothing that determines its standards, criteria, its conclusions, other than it itself. Now that sounds troubling and viciously circular, but as Burton Drebin said about Rawls, he said, of course Rawls' argument's a circle. That's not a problem. Everything depends on how big the circle is. <laughs> and that's right. That's Rawls' coherentist ideal of justification. You can't get outside of that existential commitment to find justification with one another. There's no getting outside of it for some standard that you can force others or yourself to bow down to. But that doesn't mean that you can't achieve objectivity from working within it. And it also doesn't mean, importantly for Rawls, that nature might not be on our side. Right? So think about the following natural fact. 
that gets things going just a little bit. And here's where Rawls takes inspiration from Rousseau. It's a natural fact about ordinary human persons that when they see another human person in manifest distress, they identify with it and seek to aid. Now that can be abused if you're raised in Bosnia and indoctrinated, if you're raised in Nazi Germany, if you're raised in a racist U.S., it can be abused. But Rawls's conviction with Rousseau is that there's a natural basis. It doesn't entail it, but nature's on our side. There's a natural basis for recognizing others as persons. And as soon as I respond to the other who's in manifest distress as something other than an object to be used for my purposes, as soon as I respond to them in a way that shows some mutual identification, I've affirmed them as a person, and they're likely to do so on the basis of reciprocity, a natural impulse in us to me. And as soon as we have mutually affirmed our personality one to another, we're committed to the project of finding mutual justification. It would be a huge mistake for us both now to stand open-armed waiting for tablets to fall from the sky because even if they did fall, we'd still have to decide what they meant. We'd still have to reach some intelligible agreement at that level. So tablets falling from the sky doesn't solve anything. How do we find that mutual intelligibility? Well, we move around inside the circle as best we can until we've traversed it and traversed it, and traversed it again. And that's the ideal of reflective equilibrium. Once we have finally settled on a form of living with one another, such that for each of us, all our commitments form a coherent whole, not just internally, but with others, and we can get on living together, justification is done. And we've achieved what Socrates thought we should be after, which is just getting on living well. This whole business of justifying each other to one another, you know, it's in a way just a prolegomena to the real thing. The real thing is when we are justified. That's the beatific vision, right? When we are justified to one another and we know how to go on effortlessly, then the community is realized. And at that point, it becomes clear looking back that we never needed tablets to fall from the sky. We just needed to find a way of writing our ways of living and the reasons we give for them, one another, so that we were mutually aligned, one with another. I'm still a little troubled in the sense that suppose one were completely self-sufficient, then what would be the motivation for cooperating with people that weren't in your position? Or think of it another way. Uh, I assume that the scope here has been with other human beings. Why should we limit to human beings? Why not? Uh, all living things. Why not, uh, you know, the, the planet? Okay. Let, me, let me just stop you there and take those two, two okay. examples, okay? The first, what if we were self-sufficient? You know, <laughs> what if, what if, you know? Yeah, if I was a god and I had no existential commitment to community or personality, I was content just being a rational egoist as a god, yeah, okay, so what? None of us are. And most of us don't even find that a very attractive view of God. Okay, So set that one aside. There's no doubt that we have moral obligations 
vis-a-vis other living things. No doubt about that. I take that just to be common moral sense. The question is whether or not you can be justified with other living things. Now, from Rawls's point of view, that depends on whether or not we can use the medium of justification to establish right relations with them that are mutually intelligible. What's the medium of justification? That's what reason is. Reason is speech in the form of mutual intelligibility and justification. That's what reason is. Now, unless and until we know that we can reason with other species, it looks like the prospects of justification with them are limited. That does not mean that we don't have moral obligations to them. We clearly do. But the community that Rawls is aspiring to, even democratic community, political community, that's a community between persons who can render themselves intelligible to one another as they engage in the paradigmatic activities of social life, producing things in cooperative ventures, sharing in the exercise of authority, accepting a distribution of division of labor and a distribution of wealth and so on, and acquiescing to that and go. You know, that, that's what it is to be justified to one another in political life. And my guess is we don't yet have any evidence that orangutans, which seem to be highly intelligent in other respects, possess the capacity to even enter into democratic community, let alone some richer, you know, quasi-theological notion of, of moral community. But we might be wrong about that. Everything depends on whether or not we find ourselves able to engage them in a way that's mutually intelligible. Um, I'm, I'm not sure I know his pronunciation. He was a French philosopher with the Technological Society. He also wrote a book on propaganda, Jacques Ulel. U-L-L-E-L. Oh, don't know it. Sorry. Well, his conclusion is that propaganda works. Yeah. And uh, we're now, one of the, the hottest issues of the day is the recent Supreme Court decision, which allows corporations to spend money on the, the, the basis of thinking that, that advertising work, which is basically propaganda. Yeah. And I get solicitations on the web all the time for Move On and other, mm-hmm. you know, we, we need, you know, and the message seems to be I'm reasonable and rational and you're reasonable and rational, but all these other people are subject to propaganda, so send money. Yeah, yeah, now, great. Now, how, how would that fit into... Yeah, no, this is perfect, polls. absolutely perfect. You know, twas always thus in a democracy. I read just in the last week a paper from 1946 that Rawls wrote as a graduate student, unpublished, etc., in which this very issue, that exact issue, came up. It's no new discovery that propaganda works. Of course propaganda works. It's worked for a long time. But that's exactly why he pursues the path that he pursues. The original position, model, is not a representation of any person's actual reasoning. Nor need we, even after people have self-consciously identified with it, assume that it's actually governing their reasoning. The fact is, Rawls thinks, we can never know what's going on in a person's head because it's scientifically unobservable at the level of their reasoning. You can see flashing lights on a scan, you know, but you can't tell what's going on by way of reasoning. All we can do then is check people's commitments, political judgments and commitments, against some verifiable explication of what 
in fact, a democratic citizen would conclude. And if it turns out that your political judgments are consistent with what a democratic citizen would conclude as compared to this explication, right, that's just a kind of reasoning machine, then it doesn't make any difference to me whether you're in fact in your mind being manipulated by propaganda or something else. All I need to know is that your actual positions can be publicly, scientifically vindicated as consistent with a democratic self-understanding. And if I can know that, I have enough, Rawls thinks, to trust you. He says in this paper that the single greatest mistake in moral theory is also the single greatest mistake in democratic theory. And that's the desire to get into people's heads, to think that something actually turns on our knowing what's really going on in people's heads. What is really at stake is whether or not we can construct a rational explication of the judgments, no matter how they're produced. Propaganda, maybe I just had an idea, I'm, I'm subject to you know, little flashes, whatever it is, as long as the judgment I'm tendering is one that I can vindicate by comparing it to this reasoning machine, we've secured the basis of trusty things. Well, if people, though, can be manipulated in the mass to a position that's not to their own betterment or society's betterment, then, well, isn't, then, yeah, it, but then let's, isn't it hard to claim that they have self-understanding? Yeah, well, it depends what the... Another excellent question, just superb question, because these are just... Um, open the door to the, the, the deep philosophical terrain. You mentioned Bert Drebin. Uh, why was Jack so influenced by and friends with Bert Drebin? Drebin was a Wittgenstein student. Rawls learned his Wittgenstein first from Drebin and Norman Malcolm, later from Hilary Putnam and Stanley Cavell. Wittgenstein said the following about understanding, which Rawls would repeatedly write in notes. This is an important point. Understanding is not some special event that happens in your mind. Understanding is simply going on correctly. That's all it is. The criterion of whether or not you understand is simply whether you go on correctly. It's not some special inner experience. It's not something that we have to hunt out for. So it can be publicly verified in some sense, right? Do you understand is a question of... And think about when you teach... This is Wittgenstein's example. When I teach my kids how to count, as long as my kid goes 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and they know that after 14 comes 15, they understand... I don't know what the hell's going on inside their heads. The foggiest idea. They're probably nothing. They're kids. But they know how to go on. And that evidences their understanding. So for Rawls, when he talks even about self-understanding or understanding one another, it's about finding a way to going on correctly together, where correctly is assessed by a public criterion. There's a public standard that tells us whether or not we're going on correctly. And he, in fact, thought that the, one of the huge payoffs of this is we would finally be able to drop so much of our political language that is nothing but propaganda. He says in A Theory of Justice that the goal is to come up with a, what he calls a replacement schema. And a replacement schema is a way of talking that doesn't purport to capture the meanings of our terms or what's going on in our head, 
but that would reliably deliver the exact same results that we arrive at on our own and would do so in a clear, transparent way, free of propaganda. Rawls thought, you know, if he could make the case for these two principles and the original position and all that as the reasoning machine, then we could just drop all this everyday talk about justice and so on and the way we manipulate each other with moralistic language and preaching and propaganda and whatever. It'd just become a scientific question whether or not a person understands what a democratic citizen is. You know, is the view that you've got one that we can vindicate by reference to the reasons that are given by the original principle. If it is, then you understand what it is to reason as a democratic citizen. I don't care how you came to your view. Right? Just like my kid knows what it is to count if they know how to go on to the next number. And that's, that's really all we need. And, and ideally, we, this would be a way of freeing ourselves from all this propaganda. <laughs> okay, my question that I've been struggling with, this is like last week, I think of like children, like so you have to kind of bring children up against their will to be rational, you know, competent, reasonable uh-huh. individuals, even if that's not what they want, right? So they don't necessarily want to be rational, but once but once we bring them over, they then see the good of being rational because they already they're already thinking this way. There is some form of coercion that's at play. So if I don't necessarily see the democratic project in the way you all sees it then maybe there's something wrong with me. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it's, uh, that's clearly not Rawls's view. Um, he, of course, regards his own work, um, as I said, not as the last word, but as something more than the first word, perhaps, because he thinks of himself as working out of a democratic tradition that runs back through Locke and Rousseau and carries forward through Mill and so on. And... He's also um, very clear at various points in a theory of justice, um, not so much as I recall, although maybe in that first section in, in Justice as Fairness, the Restatement, that in one respect, he's working out a view of what a coherent, reflective equilibrium view, viable view, a view that might achieve stability, of what democracy is by his lights. And then he invites you to do the same thing by your lights. And as he says in A Theory of Justice and in, in many other papers, then we compare notes. And, and the idea is that if you follow the procedure that he's following, which you know, is neutral with respect to its outcome, it just says gather these considered judgments at one level of political morality, recognize that people disagree about those, and so you're going to have to construct some sort of reasoning machine that generates principles that might order those conflicting principles at the level of legislation and adjudication and so on. If you go through that procedure, just working out, he he thinks you're going to arrive at a view that's just about like his. So you might right now think, well, this doesn't seem very plot. I don't buy all this. He says, okay, that's fine. Work it out for yourself. Surely you're committed to figuring out what it is to reason as a democratic citizen as well. And surely you're committed to at least finding out whether democracy can be other than counterfeit, whether it can be real, whether we can actually be reasoning with one another in a way that we would publicly verify establishing trust and so on. So go ahead, go through the process and and see. Now, if it turns out that you and he, after that exercise, arrive at fundamentally different positions, then the question of justification, mutual intelligibility with each other within that democratic project is open, right? We have to decide how to go on and now we face a new problem. But we aren't even there yet. So the first task is to 
follow him in his exercise. And if you find yourself um, ill at ease with the conclusions he's drawing at various points, to go through the exercise for yourself and then compare notes. Right. Because I guess like, I'm thinking we have to, it seems that you have to have the same starting point to even begin to engage in the same conversation with. Well, it's absolutely true that there have to be some shared starting points. For example, if you do not recognize me as a person, the game's over. So there's a starting point. A second starting point is that we have to have a common understanding of democratic citizenship or the democratic project at its most basic level. Now, that might sound like a lot, but really it's not. Think about what it means to live in a democracy. What it means to live in a democracy is that our fundamental institutions are justified by our collective reasoned judgment, not by our submitting to natural forces not by our submitting to tablets that fall from the sky, not by our submitting to ancient doctrines inherited that are somehow thought to be sacred and immune from criticism. We are in control of our institutions. It's true that we can only adjust them within the parameters of what's physically possible and so on, but beyond that, we are in control. Now, that seems a fairly uncontroversial view of what democracy is, and in fact, that's just the view that's modeled in the original position. Think about what it would be to have democratic citizens only as democratic citizens, not as you are now, because you've already been shaped by institutions that are already formed. Democratic citizens just qua that authority over their basic social structure, and then ask them, what principles would they rely on to regulate the society in which they live? So that's, you know, I mean, maybe you disagree with that idea of democracy, but it's hard to see what the rivals are. Now, you could just reject the idea of democracy, right? You could just say, um, I refuse to buy into the democratic project because I think that political societies um, are always subject to authority uh, as given by revelation. Or I think that there's a natural order, like Aristotle thought, Right? There's a natural order just built into nature that makes some people fit for rule, other people fit for being ruled, and that's it. I reject it. Okay, fine. You're just unreasonable as far as we con- we're concerned. Another great Bert Drebin line. Bert, Bert Drebin said, um, look, when, when the Nazis come, you don't give them a theory of justice. You pick up a gun. <laughs> and, and, and the point is, is and Rawls said this too, you're either in the democratic tradition trying to figure out whether it's viable or you're not. Now, if you're in the democratic tradition and you're trying to figure out whether it's viable, then he's offering you a way to move forward with that ambition. If you're not committed to the democratic project, then there's two possibilities. Either you've already worked through all the arguments and concluded that it's not viable, in which case you're far more advanced a political philosopher than any of us have ever seen before, or you're just somebody who is, at the front end, not part of the democratic tradition. And if you're not, well, you're not part of our community. You don't even aspire to community with us. So, you know, I mean, if you're not going to threaten us, I guess we don't have to pick up the gun. But as soon as you threaten us, I'm prepared to pick up the gun. And that was Rawls's view, too. Ultimately, that's why he came back thinking, you know, I did the right thing when I volunteered, went and fought in the Philippines. That was the right thing to do. What just clicked in my head, uh, during the uh, 2000 election, uh, when there was this raid of the Miami office counting the votes, someone said there's, there's a whiff of Nazism in the air. At what point do you decide you're dealing with Nazism versus failing to connect 
with the other person, especially given, you know, again, my background, 3% of the population is sociopathic and they don't, they don't feel this yeah. connection. So at what point are we simply being defensive because they don't agree with us versus they're really threatening, they're really being cynical and really threatening democracy? I yeah. mean, are we the Weimar Republic right now or are we, are we getting scared over nothing? Yeah. I, I think the question really comes down to whether or not we're able to sustain and publicly vindicate um, the right sorts of institutions. Remember, we're not concerned with what, in fact, is going on inside people's heads, as it were. Uh, and we're not concerned with perfecting people in some sense of trying to make them into, you know, exemplary democratic citizens in the sense that they have all the right internal motives and feelings and all the rest. We're concerned with institutions taking a certain sort of shape, being verifiable publicly as just, and then our politics unfolding in such a way that we can see it as at least represented to ourselves as reason-giving, right? That's, that's what we're, we're after. Now, when groups begin to encroach on that, then the use of coercive state force for defensive purposes proportional always. You can think of this as a kind of internal war, right? So there's all sorts of just war considerations, proportionality, and so on, becomes legitimate. But there could be lots of unreasonable groups in society that simply don't pose that kind of a threat, in which case, in a decent liberal society, they're just left alone. They're neither celebrated nor publicly despised. They're just more or less left alone and coercive state power kind of keeps a watchful eye, but that's about, about it. Where, though, it looks like there's really attempts to seize political power through manipulation, changing vote, whatever, right? Well, then you have real reasons to, to authorize state action, and that's, that's like an internal war. So um, it's, it's a war against the unreasonable here at home. So that, then... Are you saying that you would have to wait until it gets to a sufficient size to be a real threat? To, whereas, yeah, you, I, whereas I, you could just say, oh, oh, well, these guys are eccentric. Few, just a few eccentrics, let them be. Yeah, um, it's, a, it's a very good question. Um, I'm inclined to think that the way to approach this really would be to think it through in terms of the application of just war principles to an enemy that happens to be at home rather than abroad. Right, attacking from, from within. And the just war principles, um, the traditional ones, which include necessity, proportionality, uh, and so on, could be applied here to any coercive state action. It's not, one must remember that things like embargoes even fall under just war principles, even though they're not literally the firing of bullets. So any exercise of state coercion that's meant either to contain an external enemy or an internal enemy has to be consistent with the demands of just war. All we can do is identify principles, and then how those principles apply to particular cases is going to become very fact-sensitive. At that point, Rawls is very fond of saying philosophy has to yield to other disciplines. The point of philosophy is to display the rational structure of an activity or to display it as rationally structured, not to get in the business of, you know, working out fine-grained judgments. That, you know, that, that's for others who have access to facts. We set out the basic principles. That's our task. Uh, it seems that a democracy requires a certain level of rationality among its populace. And my question is, what is that level of rationality? It, it seems to me that human beings have a wide range of individual rationality and that 
if you look at, at, at many aspects of this country, the, the percentage of people in prison, the, you know, how we elect our public officials based on sound bites, the rapid technological process and how we're having to make decisions on that technology when most of us don't understand that technology. Is there some kind of a critical tipping point or critical level of, of the degree of rationality that makes a democracy feasible versus unfeasible? Where is that? Where is that level of rationality? How close to it are we today? Another good question. And there's, there's a number of things that I'm just 100% confident, you know, that, that I'm literally channeling roles, as it were. But here I'm not 100% confident, but I'm reasonably confident. Uh, I'd want to make a, distinguish, uh, make a distinction between intelligence and rationality. It's true um, that there are great variations in human intelligence, in part because human intelligence ranges over more than just capacities, but includes acquired information, facility with moving that acquired information around in cognitive processes, and so on. And whether or not a democracy requires a certain amount of intelligence under modern conditions, well, most assuredly, yes, but it doesn't require them amongst all citizens. In fact, most of us in a democracy like ours aren't called upon to vote very often, unless, unfortunately, you live in California where they're becoming ungovernable by referendum. We're not called upon to vote on complex issues of legislation. We're called upon to elect people to do that, and we often do that not by assessing their overall intelligence, although that figures into it somewhat, but more generally by assessing their character, which is not a totally unrealistic thing to expect ordinarily intelligent adults to be able to do every now and again, their character and their record of past performance, right? So the level of intelligence, as it were, that's required of the ordinary voter might not be very high or, you know, extremely high. But the level of intelligence that's then required of legislators is higher and of their staffers and of the bureaucratic administrative agencies that, I mean, you know, yeah, that's true. And there's a lot of important work being done in political theory about how to reconcile the need for that level of intelligence and knowledge and expertise, which can only be Put through, you know, worked out through bureaucratic and administrative agencies to reconcile that with the rule of the people, right? So there's a very great, uh, really superb book by Henry Richardson called Democratic Autonomy uh, in which he takes up that, that very issue, right? Are we at risk of becoming something other than a democracy because we require a bureaucratic elite possessed of all this expertise and so on? But I think the view that Richardson comes to, the conclusion he comes to is the right one, which is that provided these administrative agencies are properly responsive to the electorate over time by virtue of being appointed by elected officials and so on, and there's proper feedback and transparency, we can reconcile this. I mean, after all, the project never did suppose that ordinary citizens were going to be sitting down every day passing legislation on tax policy. So that, that I think, if we make that distinction, looks okay. Now, rationality is, is something other than um, intelligence. And I think probably when it just comes to the capacity to make deductively valid inferences and inductively sound inferences, you know, probably ordinary citizens are good enough at it to be able to be reasonably reliable with respect to their charge, which is not to write tax policy or environmental legislation, but to cast these, you know, votes. 
um, as we're talking about. So, so probably there's enough rationality there. I would hope that people like Obama and senators and congressmen and women and all the rest would also uh, be operating at a slightly higher level there, less likely to be prone to the fallacy of affirming the consequent and so on. And sometimes we have our doubts about that, but, but all of us have, I guess, some failures there. So I, I would hope that the project is one that doesn't presuppose either more rationality or intelligence that a polity t- collectively can deliver, right? Remember, we don't all have to be nuclear physicists to be able to have a society that has decent nuclear policy. We don't all have to be um, environmental engineers and biochemists to be able to have a society that has decent water policy. We just need to have a society that has some of those people that are accountable to us in ways over time that we can democratically validate. I want to go back to the question of pluralism, if we could. The problem of politics is pluralism, but it's also the opportunity, right? And societies can be more or less pluralistic. I mean, you could have perhaps a pretty homogeneous country like a Scandinavian country, for example. So if people are living within a pretty homogeneous society, are they, can they be as realized as democratic liberals, liberal democrats, uh, as, a, as could be, as it might occur in the context of a very, very diverse society like the one we live in? Yep. And is there in some way an element of idealism in this that by transcending the plural, or not transcending, but uh, justifying living within pluralism, uh, a liberal democracy is then fully realized in ways that if you're in a very, very homogeneous society, it really wouldn't yeah. be. Yeah, no, excellent question. If you think back to part three of a theory of justice, where the problem of pluralism hasn't really become a problem of stability and all the rest yet, right? Because he thinks everybody's eventually going to adhere to some Kantian sort of interpretation of his own original position on justice as fairness. Even there, Rawls made a very important point that he draws from von Humboldt and others, which is that a successful society is like a symphony. That's his metaphor, is a symphony. It only achieves any significant value if there's lots of different parts doing different things in a coherent and integrated way. And when it does that, it achieves collectively something that none of those individuals by themselves could achieve. Okay? So start with the symphony metaphor, right? that a society achieves a kind of value by bringing a great deal of diverse activities together into a common shared form of life. And Rawls even goes so far as to say, each of us, it's not just that the polity achieves a good, something collectively, you know, like, um, I, w- I was a deadhead. Any deadheads here? No? Yeah. I did 110 shows. Um, and, and, and one thing you learn as a deadhead is that the group can achieve a good when everything's going right that no individual could achieve by themselves. You can't just take your share of it out. It's a collective sort of good. There's all sorts of... It's playing in a symphony or a jazz combo. It's the same thing. There's a collective good that's realized for the, for the group. But Rawls thought also that a society based on this diversity enriched us individually because each of us could vicariously identify with the lives that others were living. The fact is that I, all of us in this room have more talents than we can possibly realize in a single life. 
Every single one of us has more talents than we can possibly realize in a single life. That's true for, that's true for almost every normal, competent adult human being. You have to make choices. I've made a choice. I've become the person I've been. I'm an okay guitarist. Not what I would have been had I devoted myself to that. But I'm so glad that Garcia and Beck and Clamp are all out there because I can identify vicariously with that and experience some of that good as if it was in a way part of my life because I'm part of the society that makes that possible. It enriches my life. Okay? Now, that's all true even before we get to the problem of stability as it appears in this book after political liberalism, after the recognition of reasonable pluralism and so on. Okay? Let me add one little piece before we turn to the, the same sorts of arguments but now recast under the circumstances of pluralism. Rawls has also in part three of A Theory of Justice a principle that he calls the Aristotelian principle. Um, the Aristotelian principle is a very simple principle of moral psychology that almost everybody recognizes, which is that it's a natural fact about human beings that the more complex the activity we master, the greater value we associate with it and pleasure we take in it. Once you've learned how to play chess, checkers, eh, not so much fun. Once you've mastered bridge, go fish, eh, not so much fun. And that's true for us presumably not just individually but collectively. So now think about a democratic society that's pluralist in the way that our society is. A democratic, homogeneous Scandinavian society can be fully just. No doubt about that. There's nothing about homogeneity that stands in the way of justice. Although one might wonder, if the institutions were truly free, what sustains the homogeneity? There seems to be a kind of natural tendency towards pluralism that's part of human nature. But if we can't find anything to impugn such a society, it's fully just and that's fine. But the question is... How does that society and the individuals in it regard their achievement? My guess is that the more homogeneous the society, the less appealing in a certain way, the less value individuals take from it as part of their good, and the less pride a people takes in that collective achievement. So if you are wondering about the kind of pride that a democratic polity like ours that's deeply pluralist might take in itself. Were we able to sustain just institutions with all that pluralism, not only would we have richer individual lives, because now the diversity isn't just different occupations and so on, but it's different doctrines, different religions, whole forms of life are flourishing under our umbrella of just institutions, but also as a people we would now take great pleasure in having achieved a more complex activity because surely politics in this kind of a situation is a more complex activity than it would be in a homogeneous Scandinavian society. So no difference with respect to justice, but when it comes to the pride a people can take in their activity of ruling themselves and the ways in which individual lives are enriched by just institutions, there may in fact be a difference. There's an element of idealism here, although most of the time when he talks about the reasonable, the pluralism does not ever go away. It's not to eliminate the pluralism, but there is an element, a trajectory here of idealism. Do you mean just in the sense of being idealistic about... No, no, I mean Uberhaben. Yeah, yeah. Um, No, there's, there's absolutely a Hegelian idealistic 
deep tendency in Rawls's thought. I won't bore you with explaining what Hegelian idealism is. I, I will just describe this tendency. Uh, we've already said enough to make this intelligible. The practical reason of persons is fecund. As it forms and realizes in the world conceptions of itself, it manifests diversity. And in that sense, the democratic project under conditions of deep pluralism is a fuller and more mature instantiation of free practical reason in the world than is something else. And of course, you know, again, I hate to bring up these theological elements, but what is the idea of divine reason but ultimately fecund, <laughs> unlimitedly fecund with respect to community? And that's the idea that we could establish a, a, a pluralist democracy is the instantiation here on earth of a union of social unions, a political community of diverse communities under conditions of peace and justice. That's the beatific vision here on earth. You don't have to wait for anything else. You have done such an excellent job of capturing the best in Rawls that I've ever heard by far. What words would you leave with us to help us in our future reading of Rawls to make clear what he translated from the German. Yeah, (laughs) that's a very hard question. I can answer in a way that links up with Iris's question and the reference to Hegelian idealism. While it's certainly true that Rawls aspired to do philosophy as a democratic citizen, it's also certainly true that he never aspired to do anything other than philosophy. And philosophy for him is an ongoing historical project that just happens to occur through particular individuals at particular points of time in historical moments. It becomes part of our collective inheritance in that way. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Aquinas, you know, and so on. And it has a kind of life of its own um, and is part of its own conversation. So while he's doing philosophy as a democratic citizen in this moment in time facing these problems, he's also doing philosophy, which means he's addressing a conversation that in many ways isn't the conversation that you and I have on a regular basis. And so it requires people like me, and there's lots of people like me who are, in a way, um, translators, uh, expositors, evangelists even, who try to make this part of the enduring cultural inheritance. Because, uh, and, and I'll be honest with you, I mean, this is, it's an important thing about the academy and about disciplines that take themselves seriously. In part, my audience is you, but not mainly. My, my main audience is to make sure that Rawls is not lost in the conversation that is philosophy. That we don't find ourselves three generations from now with a community of philosophers who have lost touch. I have to hope that everybody in the community of philosophers, like me too, does some amount of work trying to help this percolate down into the larger framework of society. 
you know, Rawls's work, especially if you read a theory of justice, you know, where there's graphs and decision theory and game theory, it's a Gothic cathedral of, of just immense proportion and requires that you know things about economics, game theory, decision theory, uh, that you know things about political sociology, that you know things about logic, you know, and so on. And people come at that project then um, with the tools and expertise they've got, trying to shed light on this corner and that. Uh, and that's a perfectly respectable way to go about doing things, so long as there's also some people like me who take a step back and try to provide a more synoptic account. And you really do need both. But nothing's going to change overnight because people read this. You know, it, this, pro- this project is one that's going to take 100 years to mature, and that's going to depend on it being understood in philosophy. Right? And so my main audience is those people who know who Sidgwick is and how Rawls might have been motivated by Sidgwick, who understand the tradition of Hegelian idealism, you know, and, and who know how Rawls was influenced by Frege and, and how all of this figures in this world historical project of reason trying to make itself known to itself. And that's what philosophy is part of. So people like me, you know, I'm just a foot soldier in all this, um, but even as a foot soldier, I really do conceive of my, my work in, in this world as first and foremost disciplinary in that sense because that's what can't be lost. That's why we have an academy. Dr. Reedy, thank you so much for oh, being my here pleasure. tonight. This is, I think, a great discussion. Thank you all for being here, and thank you, Dr. Reedy. That was an episode of a community study of Justice as Fairness by John Rawls in a five-part series sponsored by Knox County Public Library and the Baker Center for Public Policy. This work is published under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 United States License, copyright 2010, by Knox County Public Library. To find the other recordings in this series, plus more library podcasts, please visit knoxlib.org. That's K-N-O-X-L-I-B dot O-R-G.